Hey everyone, this is Derek Stone. This is Conrad Geringer. And you're listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast. Today we have all coaches from Working Triathlete on today. Uh, myself, Conrad Miguel Maddox, Derek Owens, and our newest coach, Alex Leandri. Today we'll introduce her and we're going to introduce our new segment, which will be Coaches and Coffee. Absolutely. Alex Landry is the newest working triathlete coach. So she has been a part of working triathlete for a couple of years, and she she coaches a few athletes, and she's, she's an amazing coach. She's an excellent athlete. She's qualified for the world championships. She's won quite a few triathlons so she is certainly competent and she she knows her stuff um and she has a pretty deep background in in all three sports so you know alex welcome to working triathlete and welcome to the podcast but introduce yourself briefly if you will just chat a little bit about your background where where you're from how you got into endurance sports and and coaching Yep, cool. Thank you, guys. Um, well, obviously, I am very happy to be part of the working triathlete on the coaches side now. As Conrad said, I've been with the team for a few years. Um, I've obviously had extreme success with it. Um, I love this team. I love the athletes that we have uh, and the workouts that we get to do. Uh, I've been an athlete most of my life. I started with swimming, added in running in grade school, and followed that through college. Figured I'd add a bike on and start with a new sport. Um, and triathlon has just kind of been my life since, since college. Um, and, you know, I have a few athletes so far. We're having fun. I'm excited for this next season. Uh, working try is really going to come out strong in a lot of the races that we have for our team races and, um, the local races all over the United States and the world. So, um, it's going to be, it's going to be a fun time. Yeah. Well, we're super excited to have you. And this podcast episode is is special for a few reasons, but it's also going to be recurring. So all of the coaches are on this podcast, like we said, and this is called Coaches and Coffee. And every month, all the coaches are going to hop on and we're going to answer questions from athletes and from just listeners of the podcast. Uh, so if you're a listener and you want to ask a question, feel free to email info at working Dot com And a few working triathletes submitted questions to this uh, episode of Coaches and Coffee. But before we get into that and start answering questions, I think it's good to just kind of give a little bit of context on where we are right now and, and what's on the horizon for, for working triathlete. Um, so obviously we have five coaches on right now. I know Derek Owens, he's in the Bay Area. Derek Stone is up in Cleveland. Alex and myself are based out of Nashville, and we also have Miguel Maddox here, who also is sitting directly next to me in Nashville. Uh, so Jenna and Miguel drove across the country <laughs> and arrived in Nashville uh, last night. So talk a little bit about that, Miguel. Video, video coming soon, so we'll hold off on t <laughs> spoiling too much. But yeah. Um, yeah, Jenna and I drove from California out to Nashville over the course of four days um, for the working triathlete team camp um, out here. And then we are staying for an additional five weeks um, for 70.3 Chattanooga and doing some fun excursions in between those two things. But uh, 
Yeah, excited for everything. Excited to be sitting right next to you for the podcast. <laughs> so, Miguel, uh, like coming from California and driving eastward all the way to Tennessee, um, I would anticipate that the burritos would just get progressively worse. Was that <laughs> was that your experience? You know, I can't um, I, I can't discriminate any type of car burrito. I think they're all exceptional in their own unique way so uh good one derek nice try but you can't <laughs> car burritos. good i was i was trying to bait you there yeah, but, I can yeah, tell. yeah. nice diplomatic answer to the burrito question is this a brand of burrito or is this just the term car burrito because you're eating it in the car because so my wife has been buying burritos from trader joe's breakfast burritos and they're awesome um, I just put them in our toaster oven and eat them, but I'm in the house and not in a car. Well, you okay. should probably Miguel get your. Had branded them. Okay. Yeah, you got to get sure yourself like a in a brand car. Of burrito. <laughs> <laughs> just, just pull it out of you know wherever you're heating it up, and uh, and just go in your driveway, get in your car, and eat it there, and it'll be a car burrito. You don't even have to drive. Yeah. You know, actually, funny story. We. Um, once we started branding car burritos, we started getting people messaging us pictures of their car burritos. And the best one was someone holding up their burrito in the driver's seat of an ambulance and calling it like hashtag ambulance burrito. <laughs> and we reposted and we're like, this is for professionals only. Please don't try this at home. <laughs> uh, well, we're super glad you're in town for so long. And I believe that Mr. Kona Bear has a few things up his sleeves to try to keep you guys here longer. So Tennessee's happy to have you. Yes. Kona is, so Jenna and Miguel are staying with us. And we have a golden retriever named Kona. And he is an overly affectionate animal and has basically been on top of Jenna Miguel since they got here yesterday. So he's having a really good time. Right now he's prance, prancing around in the backyard. But uh, he, he's excited that, that they're here. Um, but so I guess we can dive into the, the coaches and coffee concept here. Um, so we have a, a Slack channel on working triathlete and a lot of athletes submitted questions. Um, so there are many, many questions and I, I think we can start with Seth Gorson's first. Um, he said, I'm feeling increasing emphasis on the value of being able to train and more importantly, race by feel. Why is it important? What are the situations when it's more important and are there context where sticking to the numbers is more critical? And what can we do during training to cultivate those senses so we can improve our feelometers? I can take the first part of that question and discuss a little bit about racing by feel. And not every day is going to be perfect. And I think we know that as athletes, as people, um, as in life, nothing's going to go 100% the way you planned. And you might wake up with uh, a slight cold or maybe you didn't sleep very well the night before, which generally people don't before race anyway. Um, but being able to act in the moment and make the decision to dial back if you need to, um, could be super important to finish the race well, uh, that way you don't, you know, go out too hard, you know, if you're trying to hit a certain target, but on the flip side, if you are feeling really good, um, especially probably as the races get shorter, 
um, it might be worth making a decision to take a risk and, and push it a little bit more too. And you may find a new boundary or a new limit that you want to have found. Before. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think that, um, being able to dial into, to what your rating of perceived exertion is and, and really like understand that, that feeling of different, um, different zones, whether that's like, yeah, your heart rate zones, your power zones, um, and, and getting really accustomed to how those feel, um, allows you to make those micro adjustments either during training or during racing that I think are really important. And so, yeah, I know that, uh, a, a lot of the athletes that I work with, um, we, we talk a lot about kind of triangulating, uh, uh like a couple of different metrics that being heart rate, pace or power, um, and rating of perceived exertion. A lot of times people, people generally tend to have one be a little bit more dominant in their mind, I think. Uh, and so just really getting to a point of being able to, um, to think about all of those different metrics relative to each other and make decisions, um, based on the subjective feel of the external output, um, and, and like that, the internal manifestation of that external output, I think is really, really important. And so being able to say, um, wow, I've, I, this feels a lot easier than it has in the past. And so being able to make a decision, kind of like what Derek was saying, um, to, to just push a little bit harder because you know, that, um, that your race power should feel uh, a specific way, um, is, is a great decision to be able to make. And so that's, that's why I think that improving those feelometers as Seth called it, um, is, is super important. Um, and so, yeah, that's that, that other, you got your power meter, you got your GPS watch, um, you got your heart rate, heart rate monitor, and then you got your feelometer too. So dialing that in, um, and making sure it's calibrated is super important. Yeah, I definitely like that. And I like the port, the parts about the actual race themselves. Um, and I like to use, you know, my power meter as like a, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm in the zone. And then once I'm steady there, kind of, tap into that feelometer as I love that term um, to kind of see like, Hey, can I go harder? Can I go faster? Who's in front of me that I can start passing? Yep. And the other part of this is it's important to always listen to your body when you're doing every interval. A lot of athletes, they strive to disassociate <laughs> their mind from what they're doing in training and I mean, there's a time and place to watch a movie on the trainer or kind of disassociate and not focus on how you're feeling, but you want to develop this ability to look inward and understand if you're feeling a certain way, what does that mean to, um, the situation? Like if you're feeling like you're overcooking it in a race, but the power says that you're not, well, you should probably listen to your body and you kind of have to, cause RPE is going to vary day to day. Heart rate is going to vary at a specific power day to day based on hydration. Certain days you're going to be raring to go. You know, if we think about the whoop on those days, it's probably the case that your whoop or your heart rate variability says that it's go time. So, but I mean, number one, I think in racing is, is kind of perceived exertion and triangulate like Derek Owen said, but the more often you feel what different, uh, intensity zones feel like in training, the, the more likely you're going to be able to 
kind of tap into this zone or this flow state while you're racing and, and just be more efficient and calm. Like you have to know what different race paces feel like and, and then kind of function on instinct in, in the race. And so, so that's important. And the other thing I would say is everybody should know what threshold feels like and what sweet spot feels like. Cause those are the two most important, um, sort of feelings or, or, or paces that you're going to kind of be around in races. We think about an Olympic distance race. That's basically a sweet spot effort for, you know, two to three hours. A 70.3 is a little bit easier than a sweet spot effort for most athletes, you know, for four to whatever, seven hours. Um, so knowing what being on the, the rivet feels like, which is kind of around that zone, once you know what that feels like, you can kind of get to the other zones, you know, like Ironman pace, if we're calling it the middle of zone two, you know, you just kind of back off a little bit. And, uh, when we're training in the race specific phase of every race build, we're spending a lot of time at race pace. So it is essential to be engaged in those workouts so that you really know what race pace feels like for, for the specific race that you're training for. Um, so in these instances, RPE is very important and it's important to know what RPE at race pace is. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, just another thing that, that comes to mind, like, while, while I'm hearing y'all talk about this, um, is like the, this last question, like, what can we do during training to cultivate those senses, um, to, to improve our like ability to feel, um, I think Conrad talking about like spending more and more time at race intensity and race effort as you get closer and closer to a race, it provides a lot of opportunity to, um, to really just check yourself and, and check what that feel, um, at race pace really is. And so a lot of times, like if you've got 10, 15, 20 minutes at, at race effort, um, spending the first two minutes without even looking at your power meter or, um, without looking down at your watch, um, and, and trying as hard as you can to dial into, to what that effort, um, really should feel like based on your rating of perceived exertion and then giving your, yourself the opportunity to check in and, and see how accurate that is. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's a great way of, of dialing that in, um, getting a real sense for how your rating of perceived exertion compare at race effort compares to, um, like that actual power output or that, that pace. Yeah. And I think, um, two things, Conrad, I really liked what you said about, you know, tuning into what you're actually doing, maybe like on, on the bike trainer, instead of, you know, watching a movie or listening to music, just take everything off and listen to your breathing and figure out like what, um, what your body is doing at those race paces or even just at an easier pace. Like I'll do entire workouts on the trainer with zero distraction, just tuning into, I, I was a swimmer growing up. So I'm used to just staring at a black line for two hours during my practice. So it's, um, it's something to get good at practicing because when you're out doing a race, you're not going to have that kind of distraction. It's going to be you listening to your breathing and, and you and your thoughts for several hours. Um, so just figuring out what that feels like. And then I think the other really important thing here is to put yourself in situations that are more like race situations. Um, for example, we all swim in a pool, the majority of our swim practices, 
we hardly ever get out in open water, put on a wetsuit and, and do something at race pace. Um, and if we do, it's extremely rare, but, you know, doing that more often, getting out on your bike outside is something that not a lot of triathletes do, but that's a completely different feeling than doing a workout inside, doing something at race pace inside and your body is going to react differently. Your heart rate is going to be different. Your perceived exertion is going to be different and your power output is going to be different. So it's really great to practice in controlled environments, but we we need to know what that feeling is, going back to the, to the original question, what that feeling is in more race-like situations. Uh, the other thing to consider too is the longer you are out on the course, the more likely your RPE is going to be accurate. Um, so when you think about dialing in that feeling for the race, um, if you're pretty experienced, you, you know if you start out when you first start, you're going to feel pretty fresh during the bike leg. But when you get to mile 50, that RPE is going to be a little bit more accurate. So the it's good to practice that while you're training. That way you know um, everyone has experienced times. If you watch a high school 5K race during cross country, I would say about 90, 95% of the field goes out too hard and they all fade. Um, same thing you want to execute during training. That way you know what you're going to do during the race day especially as the race gets longer. Yeah, that's a good point. And I know one part of Seth's question was, you know, when is gauging RPE most important? And like, like you just said, I, I think at the beginning of a race, it's actually more, it's wise to look at the other metrics. So look at pace, look at heart rate. Mm -hmm. And once the adrenaline subsides and you're in the midst of the race, just like you said, then really keying off of heart rate or keying off of RPE, perceived exertion, feel, becomes more important. So I think that this is a good, I, I think that we answered it. And another question relates to, to zone two training. Um, somebody asked. Hold for your dog. <laughs> oh. Um, yes, I asked this question. Um, so, you know, I, I think this is a very, um, familiar topic to probably everybody listening, um, but isn't necessarily like answered, every, answered correctly, um, or helpfully any, in any particular situation, um, wherever we're, you know, getting our information from. So, I wanted to throw it out there, get everyone's opinion on it, but um, obviously there's a lot of talk around zone two and zone two training. Um, so I'm asking a lot of questions here. We can we can kind of go through them one by one, but the first, um, you know, let's start with just what is zone two and why we should even care about it as, you know, as triathlete. So zone two is, it's an intensity zone and I mean, it's defined many different ways depending on who you ask or what intensity zone chart you're you're looking at but uh, when we think about zone two we're, we're almost always talking about zone two in the five zone intensity model where zone four is where your threshold is going to be and if you move down from there you hit zone three and that's kind of a light tempo effort this is around 70.3 pace. It's often called, people have hated on zone three for, you know, probably a decade or two. 
um, calling it the gray zone because spending time in this zone, especially the lower end of it or middle of it, you don't necessarily accrue additional fitness benefit above what you would in zone two. And um, when we think about adaptations, it isn't a great zone to be in. Uh, upper zone three, it's a little bit different because you're kind of approaching threshold at that point, that sweet spot. And you know there are specific benefits there, but in general, zone three is sort of, you don't want to spend a whole lot of time there, especially during running. Uh, if you adhere to a polarized training model, uh, and then moving down a zone to zone two, which is kind of the zone we're talking about. And zone two is, it's in a fairly easy intensity zone. And it is kind of right around, there's been a lot of chatter about LT1 and LT2 or VT1 and VT2 in the triathlon world now, because you know, Lionel is Lionel Sanders is very much into this because um, Michael Eden, Gustav Eden's brother, is coaching him, and they're all about the lactate testing and and uh, all of that. But I mean, at the end of the day, LT one, it's just basically it's around zone two. Um, the actual point in zone two that we're talking about, it varies person to person, assuming that we're calculating these zones based on, you know, on the bike, we'd be calculating them based on power and zone two is, is it's probably 60% to say 75% of FTP. Um, that's the ballpark. But what happens around LT one is it's, if you're looking at a chart and you're measuring lactate concentration in the blood and, it's the point where the lactate kind of starts to go up a little bit faster. You know, it's fairly even throughout zone one, your body is clearing lactate, uh, as quickly as it's producing it. But then around LT one, that's when it starts going up. And then in zone four at LT two, that's the threshold. So when we talk about what's your threshold for cycle, what's your threshold power, what's your threshold pace for running, we're talking about, LT2 or VT2. And that's where the, there's a very dramatic spike in lactate concentration. And that basically means that your, your, your body is having difficulty producing energy aerobically. So you're exercising at such an intensity that you're kind of going anaerobic. And when you're going anaerobic, your body kind of creates lactate and the pH value of, of the blood goes up so the blood kind of becomes a little bit acidic and that's that burning feeling um and and that's lt2 so point being zone two is substantially easier than threshold and it's a conversational pace and it feels pretty darn easy but the trick is in zone two your body incites incredible adaptations and you build a lot of useful fitness in zone two, you know, your heart reaches max stroke volume. Uh, zone two is the best zone to be in to increase basically the robustness of your mitochondria. And I think that that's the main thing. So there's a lot of overlap in fitness benefit from the various zones. You know, we think about aerobic capacity, building capillary density, things like that. But what's really unique and specific to zone two is 
the mitochondria development. So uh, it's, it's the sweet spot for, so mitochondria, they're the powerhouses of the cells, if you remember sixth grade science class. And that basically means, you know, they take the oxygen in the cells, kind of in the muscles, and it, they create energy, so ATP, and they enable you to, to basically put out power. And you need a lot of mitochondria, and they need to be healthy if you are going to improve your cardiorespiratory fitness, because that's... The more mitochondria, so the more time we spend in zone two, the fitter we get, the mitochondria, the increase in size and number, and they move to the outside of the cell so that you can produce more energy aerobically. And that means you're fitter. And zone two is the best zone to, to develop this. Um, the higher intensity zones, you know, they're great at increasing stroke volume and, and boosting aerobic capacity, but you don't really enhance the health of your mitochondria at the higher intensity zones. So zone two, that's a benefit, mitochondria building, but you can also do a lot of volume there without overtraining. Um, but so, so it's, it's low recovery costs, high fitness benefit, and you develop an incredible engine and, and uh, there's a lower likelihood of getting injured there. Um, so, I mean, th those are a few reasons why zone two is a good zone to be in. Um, but, I'll let somebody else jump in because I've been talking a while. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll say a couple things too. Like, like you mentioned, uh, the mitochondria, the function gets much greater once you train in zone two. Um, you, your body starts to oxidize the fat as the fuel source, which, you know, in long course racing, I'm not going to condone that we are ever fat adapted, but it's good to be able to use fat as a fuel source and as well as carbs when you're racing. Um, but for athletes that are looking for, you know, to um, better their body composition, um, you can obviously burn more fat in this zone, which can help as well. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, you're going to really just enable the, the function of the mitochondria and uh, burn more fat during this zone. So um, like before we even go on to question two, because we're still on question one, um, the like, what is it and why do we care about it? But also like I'm interested in, in a couple of different ways um, that someone might know that they are in zone two or like know what their zone two is. And so I know that there are a couple of different ways to go about that, talking about um, like setting zone two power and pace thresholds, but also like setting heart rate thresholds um, and setting heart rate zones. And so there, there are a few different ways that you can go about this um, of varying levels of accuracy. One of them being um, like the Maffetone method or like 180 minus your age, um, like being basically your, your zone two heart rate. But that, um, a lot of times is, it is accurate for the general population, but isn't necessarily, um, always accurate to the individual. And so individuals are all different. Um, and also, uh, people are different on different days as well, but um, a, a little bit more accurate of a way of, of setting a threshold um, when it comes to heart rate zones and, and um, like figuring out what your zone two heart rate ceiling is, which is likely up in that range that, that Conrad was talking about where your blood starts to um, produce more lactate than it's able to flush. Um, your uh, like a way of doing that would be doing a like threshold run test 
which a lot of times I think the protocol for it is 30 minutes of all out running after having warmed up a little bit, 30 minutes of all out running, and then taking your average heart rate over the last 20 minutes of that period and um, calling that your maximum heart rate. And then right around 80% or a little bit under 80% is generally where the, the ceiling of your, of your zone two is. And so that, um, that just like gives you a good idea of your, your heart rate zones. Then you can also do lactate threshold testing, um, in a lab, um, to get even more accurate results. Um, but, but generally that's, that's how you might be able to, to set your own zones or, or that's likely what, what you've, um, like done or are going to do with, with one of us as coaches in order to ensure that when you are in zone two, that you're actually in zone two, because Conrad also mentioned, um, that, sometimes it can be easy. It, it can feel like fun and just like you're getting a good workout to get into that zone three, like comfortably hard effort. But a lot of times once you're getting into low to mid zone three, it might feel like something you can sustain for a long time, but you're not allowing your body to recover enough to be able to go really hard on the harder days and to, to really like hit those those sweet spot, those threshold workouts that were also mentioned. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why it's important to, to do zone two, uh, like training in zone two and actually below that LT one threshold is to allow your body to, um, like build its aerobic engine and to get that training stimulus in without, um, like tiring yourself out so that you're not able to handle the rest of your training load. Yeah. I like that. Um, Another very non-scientific way that I gauge um, what zone you're in is really using that like, okay, am I able to talk through this run? Am I able to completely talk through this ride? If you're able to, without you know losing your breath and just having full-on conversations, laughing, talking with your friends while you're running or biking, that's typically indicative that you're in your zone two. And then when you hit that zone three, it's gonna be harder to talk if you're going up a hill, you know? Um, and if you're on the track and you're doing some interval work, you're probably in your zone four, you shouldn't be able to talk. And then your zone five is like, if you were to go all out, you wouldn't be able to go more than 30 seconds. Um, and that's how I like to explain it on a very non-scientific basis of like, can you talk during this workout? I want you to be able to talk, put some headphones on, sing. That's how easy you should be going is you should be able to do that without getting out of breath. Yeah, I think that's a super important lesson to a lot of triathletes. It's almost like if you're going out for a zone two run, you should come back to your house feeling like almost frustrated that you didn't get a good workout in. <laughs> like you, you should feel like, man, I, I just, I didn't get anything done. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's where you're getting the, the adaptations that we've been talking about. And I want to touch on one. It's very easy. I mean, it's not easy, but it's easier to gauge this stuff when you're, um, when you're running and biking, but it's very difficult to measure this stuff in a pool because you can't do the, the conversation test, obviously. <laughs> I mean, you can try, but I wouldn't uh, recommend it. Um, but you know, what I tell my athletes is like, it's what I just mentioned about running, but like go so easy because swimming in itself is difficult for a lot of people. If they, you know, if adult learned swimmers, mostly, you know, people that are new to swimming, they get in a pool and they swim one lap. They can be out of breath no matter what type of effort they're putting, no matter how hard they're trying. 
they'll be out of breath because it, it, you're, you're holding your breath, you're doing a motion that your muscles are not accustomed to. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just, it's important to go easier than you think you should be going. Um, you know, at all costs, try to get to the other side of the pool or get through the interval without being out of breath and tune into that effort and it'll get easier. You'll, you'll figure out your body will learn how to make that type of swimming easier. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's more common in swimming than anything else to have athletes like trying too hard to get a workout in and exhaust themselves in a pool. But like, I can't, you know, stress this enough, how easy you should be going to find this kind of zone two easy, relaxed pace. Yeah, I think this ties really well back to Seth's question of like the power matters, the heart rate matters, but the RPE also matters because all of it ties together to make one cohesive tank, which is your body. When you're on your bike, if you ever go outside, you have to be really careful if you're in a hilly area or if you're in a group ride because there can be a lot of spike. If, if the goal is to ride in a zone two effort, you've got to be really diligent about paying attention to the effort because if you're going up hills and you start spiking um, or you're in a group ride and people start surging, you go with them, you're, you're going to take away from uh, staying in that zone that you want to be in. And it's, I think it's good to understand kind of foundationally what the point of training is, what endurance training is. And it's really to make it so that you can create a lot of energy aerobically and to do that there are a few things that you need you basically have to have the ability to process more oxygen and use that oxygen efficiently so that you can you know pedal efficiently you can run efficiently you know that's run economy is often talked about it's like how many milliliters of oxygen does it take you to run seven minute pace how much oxygen does do you require to run at six minute pace per mile? Um, and that can vary person to person. Uh, and also how much oxygen can you, you know, convert into energy? That's your aerobic capacity or VO two max. Um, so, I mean, those are important metrics. And then we have the threshold metric, which is basically the point at which you really start to go anaerobic. And if you back off of your threshold or zone four, just a little bit, you can kind of spend, you know, two, two and a half, three hours there in that sweet spot zone. But if you're above it, like to, to what Alex said before, and you get into zone five, you know, you might only be able to hold a zone five intensity. It kind of depends on where you are in zone five, but you know, six minutes, six to, you know, maybe you can hold a true zone five pace for, you know, 12, 15 minutes. It, it depends how optimized you are in, in zone five. But anyways, so we try to improve these, these metrics, but to improve them, it's really almost at the chemical level that we're doing this. And that, that has to do with the mitochondria development and the ability to kind of take oxygen and convert it. But also when we think about the infrastructure, it's also capillary density. So think about like the, these little hoses that go into your muscles to deliver oxygen and blood to your working muscles, like you're developing these and your body does a very good job at inciting these adaptations in zone two. And just because zone three, you're putting out 
a greater effort, that doesn't mean that your body is going to more efficiently incite these adaptations, say, in, in zone three than, than zone two. So we're trying to do, a reason to be in zone two is we're looking to maximize the fitness benefit with as little energy expenditure or stress on the body as possible. And, and that's why zone two is, is the zone you want to be in, you know, lower recovery costs, uh, your immune system will be, you know, less compromised. 60 minute run in zone two versus a 60 minute run in zone three, you're going to recover from it sooner. Your endocrine system is going to function better after it's just day in and day out. We're looking for sustainable just consistency and zone two will, will enable that. That isn't to say that high intensity work is not important, but it's important for a different reason than kind of what we're talking about right now. And, and that's why zone two should compose, you know, 80% or more of your, of your workouts, um, especially running. I'm just curious, has anyone here been like done any tests in a lab to figure out like fat burning optimization and lactate threshold testing or anything? Yeah, I did a test with, uh, with a, a breathing apparatus and it basically, it, uh, assessed like basically your resting metabolic rate and vo2 max um but you know there is a lab in nashville called transformation labs and and we do have a, a kind of a partnership with them and they do vo2 max testing lactic threshold testing they do body composition and, and stuff like that but for what we're talking about right now what they would do is you know they would produce this this readout so you would hop on the bike or you would run on the treadmill and they do a, a mask. So it, it measure, it would measure VT1 and VT2. And it would basically look at a pace and it would look at your heart rate at a given pace and what exactly, you know, how many, how much fat to carbohydrate are you burning at that pace? And it establishes your zones based on actual like physical data. <laughs> We're not just estimating it based on a threshold test and, and you can identify L or VT1 and VT2 in this test and really, really dial it in. So it's, it's useful, but what's specifically useful about that and like what substrate you're burning is you can see if you're getting more efficient, say at burning fat, uh, at zone two. So in Ironman's, one of the limiters is it's a metabolic limiter. So if you're burning too many carbohydrates, you're going to bonk, you know? So we want to try to build efficiency at, at race pace in an Ironman. So what we're talking about there is you obviously want to be relaxed kind of in that zone two race pace area. And you also want to make it so that you can burn a decent amount of fat relative to carbohydrates at pace. Cause then the more efficient you are, the really kind of the harder you can go and, uh, still function aerobically and still have the ability to kind of preserve those glycogen stores. That doesn't mean we should all be on the keto diet because for a host of reasons, that's not good. But the idea is spend time at race pace. If you're training for an Ironman, you will just, you'll become more efficient there. The only lab test I've ever done was a nuclear. The only lab test I've ever to, done uh, was a nuclear was properly stress test, test nothing to, uh, performance related. Uh, they, they put a little bit of radioactive material into my, my blood and then uh, put me on a treadmill and wanted to get my heart rate up to 170, which it never did. Um, but that was for just looking at my heart and how it was operating. Uh, some of the valves were not operating the way they should have been. Um, but yeah, again, not performance related. That's the only, only lab test I've ever done.
I've never done a lab test, but I would love to do some <laughs> experimentation on myself. That sounds very interesting. Well, at, at the camp this weekend, the working triathlete training camp, um, Kurt Lockhart from Transformation Labs, he's actually giving a seminar. I don't know if you guys knew that, but he he's going to come in and he's going he's gonna to chat about different types of testing and we'll talk about how to apply it to triathlon training and endurance training so that you have these numbers, but what do they mean? And how do you apply these numbers to, to training? Uh, so we'll chat about that. But, you know, it, it's useful information for sure. Okay. There's, there, there's like so much that we're talking about with zone two. I want to like, sorry, Derek, I, I cut you off real quick, but um, I, I want to get everyone's just like one thing they would tell, you know, kind of amateur triathletes or triathletes at any level that are having trouble, like conceptualizing what all of this means. Like what's the one takeaway with, with like the topic of zone two? I'll go first. I think mine is um, go easier on your easier days than you think you should be going. I would say um, that especially for new triathletes, the likelihood that you are going too hard um, in what you think is zone two is probably pretty high. And so uh, I, I think that a lot of people get really frustrated when they're like, but but zone two, I'm, I'm running 10 and a half minutes per mile. Like that, that can't be right. I can't actually be making adaptations, but, um, but you are. So yeah, your, your zone two is likely, um, significantly lower than what, um, what it might feel like, especially as you're just getting started. Yeah, definitely do a proper test to ensure you're in the right zones. Like Derek mentioned earlier, you know, there's the chart that gives you the max heart rate minus your age. Uh, that could be accurate for certain people, but it'd be better to do a test, a proper test, to find out your exact zones. That way you know you're training in the zones you need to be training in. Yep, I would just echo Miguel. Like, you're you're probably going too hard. Slow it down. Just go easy. Have fun with it. Um, find a friend to run with and talk to. Get on the phone or put some headphones in and sing, and that'll really help. Yeah, I think the main takeaway is that the vast majority of your workouts should not be stressful or painful or anxiety inducing inducing you know your body incites great adaptations at you know 60 percent of max so do the math 60 percent of max heart rate is pretty darn low and most of training can be fun and, and painless however on those key days you better be ready to get after it <laughs> i don't know uh i don't know if any of y'all have ever listened to dr peter atia's podcast but if you're looking to do a real nerd out on some zone two he's got a couple of really long interviews with um a guy named dr inigo samalan who is um tade pogachar's coach and he's a, an exercise physiologist and they talk about zone two for like three and a half hours two different times so if you're looking to really um, like dive into some zone two stuff, um, I would definitely recommend that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that we chatted a lot about zone two. Do we miss any component of this question? Are there more techie and advanced ways of measuring? Well, we, we talked about that in the lab. You know, one key lesson for the typical triathlete around zone two training. I think we talked about that a little bit, but just to elaborate on that, 
I think that, you know, for you, Miguel, zone two running really kind of transformed your running. And a lot of those runs were, quote, laughably easy. So I think the lesson, one lesson, I mean, we can just apply it to your training. I mean, you went from, you know, a pretty average triathlon runner to, you know, now you're a 15-minute 5K runner. Um, and the, that is mainly attributable to increasing zone two running, you know, rather than these heroic, I mean, you did a lot of high intensity stuff, certainly a lot of track work, but I think that, you know, the volume more than anything, and and there's good evidence of this, that number one predictor of run performance, it's run volume. And, uh, there's a lower likelihood of injury and it just, turns you into a great runner. So don't underestimate the value of easy running, especially. But yeah, so these, I think that these two questions are are good for our first Coaches and Coffee podcast. And there will be, uh, we'll have these frequently and and answer questions. We have a lot of other questions to, to go over, but in the interest of not dragging this out, you know, I think this is a good, good place to, to wrap up the podcast, um, does anybody have any any last thoughts on Zone Two training or anything that's coming up for for working triathlete? I know we do have a, a special race coming up in in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So, what's everybody most excited for coming up soon? I know that uh, we have camp next week, so that'll be great. If anybody hasn't signed up yet, you should definitely sign up and join us in uh, Montgomery Bell, Tennessee. Yeah, hopefully this podcast gets out in time, but April 22nd to 24th, we have the the camp, and I'm sure Jenna and Miguel will have an awesome video that you could watch, so head over to their YouTube channel, Jenna and Miguel, um, to to watch the video recap of the camp, or if there's still time, sign up, or or sign up next year. Um, Or just show up. Bring cash. Cash or Bitcoin. Just roll in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah this is the first time that i'm uh that we're gonna be like traveling with our bikes in bags um on the plane with us so i, I don't know like what kind of looking forward to it i'm i am but uh yeah i'm i'm looking forward to my bike getting to tennessee safely this weekend coming up and then we're flying all the way back across the country to California and then going back to Tennessee in like four weeks for 70.3 Chattanooga. Um, so yeah, lots of traveling with bikes coming up. So hopefully my bikes get to and from all these places safe and, um, yeah, I'm, but I'm definitely looking forward to camp and looking forward to 70.3 chat. Yeah. The good thing is if, if something catastrophic happens to your bike, you're coming to an area of the country where there are probably a hundred other working triathletes with 300 bikes and everybody would be willing to let you borrow one. So worst case scenario, you know, you ride somebody else's. So we got you covered if something bad happens to the bikes. All right. Yeah. I, I shouldn't have put that out into the ether because now, now we're talking about it way more than I want to. <laughs> <laughs> Everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. No, I'm, I'm excited to see everyone again. Uh, going back to my old stomping grounds and visiting Nashville and seeing all of you and all the other athletes that we coach at camp. Yeah, I'm pumped for it. And then the week after camp, we have a crew heading down to Irving. And I'm most excited about the mixed relay team we have. You know, we'll have Jenna, Miguel, 
Alex and, and Anthony Didion, uh, rep, repping working triathlete in the mixed relay. And that's going to be, you know, uh, a really intense event. So that's draft legal. You swim 250 meters, you bike five kilometers, and then you, you basically sprint 1.2 kilometers. Uh, you run. So, so it's 250 meter swim, 5K bike, 1,200 meter run. So it's an intense effort, but. There will be no zone two. No, no zone, <laughs> zone two. Five. The opposite of zone two. Zone five. <laughs> um, wait, yeah, so that's. That's the mixed relay in Irving. What, like, but yeah, talk a little bit more just briefly about like what that what what that's a part of because I know it's like a much bigger thing. Yeah, well, we have been nonstop thinking about and talking about the strategy involved in this mixed relay because we all do long course events, maybe a sprint triathlon here and there, but this is just so different. Did some transition practice at the air park this morning, um, so. We'll figure it out. But yeah, um, this event put on by USAT Multisport Nationals is a four-day event. I think there are like eight total events that you can sign up for. I am personally signed up for six of them. The first two days, Thursday and Friday, I'm going to be doing two races each day. And then the relay is Saturday and then another event Sunday morning. So I'm excited to kind of get back to... Um, kind of like the swim meet days of my life when, you know, these events, the swim meets would be over like four or five days and you have to race multiple times each day and it becomes, you know, less of a race and more of just like this period of your life that you're devoting to performing at a high level, basically all day. You have to be on because once the once your morning race is over you have to do something to get ready for the next race and once that race is over you have to get ready for the next day's race so um it's going to be very interesting doing all of that and seeing uh kind of like pushing my body in a way that is will be different than anything i've done for a very long time so i love what this event is doing i love i mean it'll be cool to see who shows up and and what the competition is like and who signs up for what but uh yeah we have a nice working triathlete presence out there so it'll be a lot of fun i know we've been talking a little bit about strategy with like um pedals and, and shoes but conrad and, and miguel i want you guys and alex to take photos of anything that's obscure i guarantee there's gonna be people out there with some unique setups for these short races um you know because i know there's like the also the the super sprint time trial, which will be similar to the draft legal sprint. I think it's the same distance if I, if I recall correctly, but some new unique formats and I'm sure there's going to be some unique setups too. Yeah. With Jenna and I were practicing our transitions this morning. And the first one I did, I ran in or I biked in, hopped off my bike, put my shoes on and went. And I didn't even realize cause it was cold and I had a headband on and Jenna goes, your helmet. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, we're curious to see if that will happen and someone will run in their helmet either accidentally or you know the three seconds to take a helmet off is going to be too much so i think it'll it'll be a blast it'll be fun i'm excited I mean, it's to only, see it's only 1200 meters you right, like right, exactly. why not just run with your helmet on you know well if you watch like the super league there some of the events they do when they do like the multiple loop uh races they even run without shoes on you know, and, or they'll, you know, they keep their swim cap on the whole time. 
and then just put the goggles back on. So it'll be really interesting to see how people, I guarantee people are going to forget things for sure. Like you, like you said, helmet. There's got to be at least one person that runs in their helmet. And yeah. I, yeah. I hope yeah. Video, video of it. Yeah, for sure. Connor's going to have to video everything. It's oh, going to be, we're, we're pumped. It's going to be really fun. Um, well, I'm doing six events and there's no way I'm going to do every single transition over those six events perfectly. So there's going to be some weird stuff and I can't wait. <laughs> you should swim in, swim in your bike shoes, Miguel, just to like make, make that there transition that much yes, faster. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Looking forward to it, but thanks for hopping on everybody. And like I said before, we'll have another episode of Coaches and Coffee each month, really. And if you want to submit a question for us to chat about, feel free to email info at workingtriathlete.com. You can also DM us at the Instagram, working.triathlete. Um, and if you want to reach me, feel free to email conrad at workingtriathlete.com. You can reach me at derek at workingtriathlete.com. If you want to reach anybody else on here, just email info at workingtriathlete.com and we'll get them in touch with you. Thanks, everybody. Chat soon.